The following program on KWNK is made possible by the Biology Department at the University of Nevada, Reno. Earn a graduate degree in biology, cell and molecular biology, ecology, evolution, and conservation biology, or neuroscience. Learn more, reach farther. Get more information at unr.edu biology. Greetings! We are Hannes Scientists bringing you discussions about human impacts on plants, animals, their habitat, and the natural world within which we all live. We want to challenge the idea that scientists are eccentric and super intelligent people. We're just regular folks with a lot of curiosity who try to uncover the secret of the natural world through the scientific process. We are Lauren, Thaisa, Ivan, and Rani, graduate students at the University of Nevada, Reno. Now, I know that for us, as concerned scientists, talking about climate change is difficult and emotionally draining. And I imagine that it's difficult to hear as an audience as well. Our goal in this podcast is to talk about these tough issues that our generations is facing. It is important to understand what is happening in our world, because as Yvonne has emphasized, we're all connected, animals, plants, humans alike. And don't worry. We have some real and tangible solutions uh, that we will discuss in this episode. However, one of the biggest barriers to fighting climate change remains the public acceptance that it is actually happening. Scientists have actually taken this up as an area of study, the psychology behind resistance to climate change and science in general. Ronnie? Denial, public doubt, and disbelief of science can harm people's health and the health of the planet. The hard part for me as a scientist is that denial or excuses that allow the public to continue the same harmful behavior can impede progress, particularly for major issues such as climate change. The denial only causes more harm for us and for other living organisms on Earth and their habitat. Science denial has also become amplified by social media. People influenced by others and what they see and hear from similar-minded individuals. However, I personally still expect an adult to hear the facts presented and then employ individual reasoning to assess or determine whether their effects on the environment are real or at least plausible then act accordingly. In science, we do not say we proved something. We say we provided support for it, but that more studies are needed. When laypersons hear that, if they are not scientifically literate, they have a really hard time. But this is how science works. Ronnie, why do you think the public has trouble with scientific jargon of saying we supported something instead of we proved something? The public expects certainty. For example, the coronavirus was novel. Scientists had never seen it before, and we were learning as we went along. The public thought scientists were flip-flopping, such as on, on guidelines, but I found scientists' fast, accurate work with the pressures of the nation and the world on their shoulders incredibly impressive. Still, to ignore scientists who are trained in asking questions, 
reviewing and understanding the scientific literature and conducting empirical and experimental research and to instead follow what you see or hear on social media is incredibly baffling to me. But science is changing such that standards, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> for teaching science in K through 12 recommend teaching science as not a collection of facts, but as a process. Students are being taught what scientists know and how, and to ask and answer their own questions. These are scientific practices. And this is a much more productive way to teach and learn about science. Unfortunately, only a handful of states have adopted these standards, and there is no national standard. Lastly, scientists are trained in their particular discipline to communicate that science to other scientists, not to the public. And honestly, in addition to mentoring students, collaborating with other scientists, lecturing, and conducting research, most scientists do not have the time. So that is where we, graduate students and researchers, come in. Hmm. I think that's a great point, Ronnie. The scientific method is a circular process of asking questions, coming up with hypotheses, testing and evaluating your results in order just to ask more questions. We're all scientists in our everyday life, which ties back to what Yvonne said at the beginning, that science is not reserved for the super intelligent people, but regular people who are curious and hunger for knowledge. Yvonne, growing up in Brazil, is the denial of science something you experienced there as well? Well, to answer this question, I would like to share a little about one event that happened in the Brazilian history called the Vaccine Revolt, and it occurred in November 1904. That time, uh, Rio had some real problem, problems related to infrastructure, which led to several diseases like tuberculosis, typhus, and uh, yellow fever and smallpox epidemics were still occurring at the same time. Uh, in the meantime, the Congress approved a mandatory smallpox vaccination to control it. Uh, and the sanitary workers could enter houses and apply the vaccine by force. Obviously, uh, you may know that this ended in a riot and that lasted around 10 days. Some churches, the media, and medical associations criticized the deal with the vaccination. And 120 years later, the same debate about obligatory vaccination because of the pandemic returned. And the explanations about why you don't need to vaccinate were still the same. As you can see, the debate about vaccination occurs in any part of the world. And the disbelief in science is unfortunately not different in other parts as well. Uh, do I believe we need to vaccinate people by force? Obviously not. But do I believe vaccines save lives? Uh, that is not a matter of opinion, but a matter of fact, a science fact. Tons of studies show that vaccines save lives. However, more than anything, I want to be able to discuss and present arguments to people showing why it is important to vaccinate, why climate change is a real thing, and how we can fight against it. It's our duty to bring science and evidence outside of the college walls to the society. Yvonne, 
how do we do this effectively in a world that is full of all kinds of information? Um, as Ronnie said, we need to face another major problem nowadays, the fake news on social media. I would like to ask you all a rhetorical question. Who would you listen to? A person that has somehow connection with you, that has a connection with you, or someone that you know nothing about? This seems like a very simple and easy question, but your answer shows how difficult our work is. Doing a quick access at the National Center for Education Statistics, it's possible to see that the overall college enrollment rate for 18 to 24 years uh, was about 40% in 2020. And that this number is still the same since the last decade. Most of our young adults are not going to the college. And for the ones that are not going, how familiar are they with what happens inside of the university? How familiar are they with science and scientific methods? And on the other hand, what we, what we as scientists are doing to remove this gap between academia and society, if we don't create this connection, show the society what we are doing, how are you supposed to expect that people uh, are going to believe us and not in a fake news shared by a person that they have a connection, that they have a connection with? We hope to create a connection with you that is listening to us, because this is the only way for us to change our world. Scientists alone can't do anything. We need society's help. I would like to return to the entire panel. As scientists, why do you think this is part of your job, your duty to share the knowledge with the public? Lauren? The name of this podcast series is Honest Scientists. Unfortunately, there's a glaring gap in understanding between academia and the general public. And our goal as a group of eager grad students is to open a line of communication to help close that gap. Many people have somewhat of a distrust in science, and I believe that one of the fundamental issues is that many people do not understand the scientific process. Yes, we might formulate hypotheses and test these hypotheses with experiments, but that is not what underlies the scientific process. The most critical part of the scientific process is severe peer scrutiny. Scientific ideas are argued over extensively in meetings among collaborators, mentors, and students, at conferences, and even in journals in the opinion section. All published materials must go through an extensive process of peer review, where several other field experts pick apart your paper for any errors. Only after the authors have addressed all the reviewers' concerns can, can research be published. Additionally, large scientific breakthroughs are usually not accepted until we have multiple lines of evidence that lead us to support the same conclusion. With breakthrough scientific theories and discoveries like evolution or climate change, thousands of field experts have come to a consensus on the basic concepts. Scientists are perhaps the most critical of our own work, and we should be. Because constant questioning, keeping your mind open to possibilities, and being open to criticism without letting your ego get in the way are all qualities of a good scientist. A good scientist. Lauren, how well do you think this works in practice? We as human beings hate being challenged, being wrong, or having our worldviews challenged. 
Scientific breakthroughs throughout history have done just that and have forced people over centuries to face the possibility that the way they were raised to view the world is wrong. Just as Nicholas Copernicus was persecuted in the 1500s for postulating that the Earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around, evolutionary biologists and climate scientists have faced mass distrust and disapproval from groups whose views are challenged. Now, Tessa, I know you're the moderator for this session, but as a neuroscientist, what can you tell us about the science behind why we struggle believing science? Well, according to psychologists, living in our social world, our reasoning often involves judgments of the moral nature of our behaviors, beliefs, preferences. So, for example, sadness and guilt may drive our decision to donate to a charity. Anger and distrust may drive our protest against the government. But these do not necessarily have to stem from reason, and more often than not, they can be linked directly to our emotions and the behaviors of others. Our beliefs, whether true or not in the greater context of things, commonly bias our judgments of validity of new arguments. Right. So this means that people hold on to an incredible amount of bias when they are presented with new information. And our brains will do all kinds of gymnastics to rationalize our beliefs in the face of contrary evidence. Lauren, how does this bias impact the way we get our information in 2022? Well, we as humans gravitate towards other people or information sources that confirm our beliefs, confirm our bias. But we avoid information that challenges it. Compounding this problem is that nowadays social media algorithms ensure that people are pushed into narrower and narrower corners of the internet that reinforce their worldviews. And with the internet being a relatively new development in our lives, many people are not equipped to separate fact from fiction when all of it is written and quote-unquote published online. Given that it is difficult for our brains to logically evaluate information without the influence of emotion, and that there is a lot of false information out there, we need to be very careful about how we spread information online, and most importantly, we need to acknowledge our own biases regularly. For me, I really like to think about my own biases in everyday life. When I meet a new person, I may have an initial first impression of them or an emotional reaction that ends up being completely wrong. So I try to give myself a longer time to process my thoughts. When I hear a new idea, I try to let the idea sink in before making a judgment about it. And when it comes to science, I try to learn as much as possible. If it's a concept that is still debated among the scientific community, I try to understand both sides of the argument in published opinion pieces, but not rants online and I make an informed decision on my own. But a scientific consensus should never be ignored. If the experts have agreed, it is time to take another step forward and ask, what next? I would like to pivot our, to our relationship with climate change. Describe how climate change has affected your research and your livelihood. What are the direct and indirect impacts of climate change? Ronnie, we can start with you. Honestly, as a, as a citizen and as a scientist, I feel mounting frustration. I keep my ecological footprint small. I do not own a car. I eat meat infrequently and employ a primary producer-based diet. I infrequently use large appliances, etc., etc. I want to hold other citizens accountable for having large ecological footprints. It should be very expensive to 
nearly unaffordable to water a lawn in the desert. Water and the ecosystem services that provide clean water are priceless. Plants hold the soil in place and prevent erosion. And organisms return nutrients to the soil for plants to use. There is no amount of money that can provide those services. In addition, I think it is important to ensure that those with greater access to resources are still allotted the same amount of water or energy usage as everyone else. Lauren, what do you think? What are some direct and indirect impacts of climate change that you have experienced? So as I briefly mentioned before, um, I study how birds respond to fluctuations in environmental conditions and food availability. I study these tiny songbirds called mountain chickadees, which are highly adapted to montane environments. My study site is located in the Sierra Nevada mountains in Northern California, where we see impacts of climate change in the form of rising spring temperatures and extreme swings between drought and heavy snow years. So we are seeing both warming and more frequent and intense climate extremes caused by shifting weather patterns. So far, we have not detected measurable changes in the timing of life history events like egg laying in response to rising spring temperatures at our site. As climate change progresses, this could be a problem for our birds. Just as Yvonne spoke earlier about phenological mismatches between plants and pollinators, there is a potential for phenological mismatch between the timing of mountain chickadee breeding and peak food availability. Chickadees primarily eat insects and spiders during the breeding season, and ideally, they would want to time their egg laying so that the peak insect abundance occurs when they have growing and hungry nestlings in the nest. But if insects begin to emerge earlier to track warming spring temperatures, but chickadees don't track this shift in phenology, then there will be less food available and nestling survival may decrease. Although I don't see this happening at my field site yet, this phenomenon has been documented in other systems by people studying birds. As far as my livelihood, I grew up in Boise, Idaho, and remember experiencing the effects of wildfire season every few summers. Nowadays, wildfires cause unhealthy air quality across the western U.S. every summer, and the fires are burning hotter and growing more rapidly due to drought and warming. The last two summers since I moved to Reno, we have had the worst air quality in the world due to wildfire smoke. The air is literally hazardous. The forests are disappearing faster than they can regenerate at the rate that they are currently burning. And although wildfires are a natural part of these ecosystems out west, human mismanagement of forests, as well as climate change, have created a perfect storm of ideal wildfire conditions, causing fires to become more frequent and intense than what would be natural. These massive forests, which were once carbon sinks, meaning carbon storage, since trees capture carbon from the atmosphere and store it in their tissues, have shifted to be carbon sources where massive amounts of carbon dioxide are released into the atmosphere during fires. More carbon dioxide in the atmosphere accelerates climate change, which in turn worsens wildfire risk, so the loss of our forests acts as a positive feedback loop escalating climate change. Yvonne, what about you? Thoughts on the relationship with climate change? Um, I remember that some years ago, I used to think that my own actions were not going to make any difference in the world. But being a person born and raised in a third world country, you start to question the system and how it controls everything. 
I'll give you an example. Uh, we know that our car produces a significant amount of greenhouse gases, but it's nothing compared to big companies that have machines operating day and night, right? We can have a long night and warm shower, but how can we compare the amount of water that we are using with the water utilized for irrigation to produce food for us or food for cattle? It is very easy to believe that the problem is in the system and it, that is just about the others, not about us. And the scenario changes when you realize that we are part of the system and that we all live in the same planet. So if you don't do anything to change, you're part of the problem too. If I can ride my bicycle, why am I going to use my car? Can I utilize the bus as well? Why do I need to take uh, so long in the shower. It seems to be trivial, but we are billions of people in the world. We start protecting uh, our world with many little changes in our everyday life. This will have a huge impact. Being aware that every little action of yours impacts the world is a way to start changing things. We need to be also aware that the ones that are making a huge impact in our world, we need to understand it, we need to search and understand who are, who are you buying from? What is this specific company doing to change the world? Do they abuse humans? Do they abuse animals? Do they get commodities from protected places in third world countries? Right now, we are in an era where you can get information anywhere, all the time, on the palm of your hand using your cell phone. Don't use it to spread fake news, but to get information on how to change the world for you and also for the future generations. Remember, we need to be part of the solution, not the problem. And I would like you guys to bear in mind that the climate change is happening and it's everywhere. You feel it when you have a week with temperatures around 100 degrees later in the summer here in Reno. When you see people dying because of heat in the northern hemisphere, is it becoming more common every single year? When you see that drought is now a real thing and it's getting worse, it might not impact your daily lives now, but if it's impacting a living being in the world, it is going to somehow impact you. Remember, everything in our world is connected. And don't forget, let's be part of the solution, not the problem. Yeah. We spoke a lot about what climate change is and the consequences of such changes on our planet. What about giving our audience some tangible solutions? Lauren? Well, Ronnie mentioned earlier about holding people accountable for their actions that contribute to the climate crisis. There are so many small actions that we can take to reduce our impact on climate change. And over time, these actions will accumulate and create big change, as Yvonne mentioned. This is tough for me to say, and I suspect it has been tough for others to say, such as scientists or politicians, but honestly, it needs to be said. We need each of you, humans everywhere, to strongly consider feeding yourselves, particularly if you own a home or property, growing what you need for sustenance canning, and being prepared when the growing season ends. Consider locomoting yourself. 
focus the majority of your activities, particularly those that require light, during the daytime and become much less active at night to reduce excessive consumption. So I believe that the first thing is to understand what you're doing in your everyday life that might be directly impacting our planet. And after that, what you can possibly do to change or reduce it. I suggest you to start with little things, like plant some foods for your family consumption. Try to think about using your car only when it's necessary. Considering spending less time in the shower and support companies that really have concrete actions to change our planet. Every little action matters and transforms you into part of the solution. Yeah, I would like to echo what Ronnie and Yvonne mentioned. Getting involved in your local community garden, such as the Paradise Park Community Garden in Reno, learning how to grow your own food by taking courses offered through the Reno Food Systems, or just getting experience in growing your own food through Soulful Seeds or Desert Farming Initiative are a great way to increase your skills and reduce your carbon footprint. Lauren, what do you think? So I had the idea of gathering friends, family, and coworkers together to create climate action networks, groups of people invested in solving the climate crisis with tangible actions. Your climate action network could meet regularly, like once a month, and you could outline the steps that you as a collective want to take to reduce your emissions, for example. In this way, we can hold each other accountable. Who doesn't keep up with their exercise routine better when they have a gym buddy or create better study habits with a group? There are so many people out there that feel just like us, just like you, that want to be part of the solution to the climate crisis but feel hopeless or feel like their actions as an individual won't matter. But we can increase our impact exponentially by getting our fellow humans involved and holding each other accountable. Well, we've come to the end of our first episode. We would like to leave you with food for thought for the next few weeks. First, we know that there are measurable impacts of climate change on biodiversity. Second, there are psychological reasons behind science denial. And third, we all have a unique perspective and experiences with climate change, and we can all be part of the solution. So if you'd like to continue your journey with us discussing biodiversity loss, tune into our next Honest Scientist roundtable discussion focused on resource extraction. At this time, we would like to thank uh, KWNK for recording and broadcasting our roundtable discussion. Thank you, thank you, thank you. was on a scientist on KWNK 97.7 FM presented by the biology department at the University of Nevada, Reno. Earn a graduate degree in biology, cell and molecular biology, ecology, evolution, and conservation biology, or neuroscience. Learn more, reach farther. 
Get more information at unr.edu slash biology.